0: Alrighty, just because I think it's important in this book, I'm going to kind of build up to where we are real quick because it all kind of flows together and tonight uh, once again we see how he, at least in my opinion, continues the stream of thought that he's uh, continuing. Uh, but you remember we talked about how that the book began with some customary greetings and then he explains his great love for the church at Philippi because of the partnership they have in the gospel, how that they had helped him so many times in a, in a, mandatory, way, a mandatory way and how that uh, he, of course, wants to be there more than anywhere else, how that he wants to get out of prison and go be with the church at Philippi. And, um, of course, he talks about how he's praying for them and different aspects he's praying for them. And then he explains to them how his situation is in prison. Uh, that The main thing is that even though he's in bonds, that the gospel is still being preached and, he, and how that, that's causing uh, even, to, even to extend into the palace and how it's causing other brethren to wax confident. And that causes him to think about the fact that there are preachers in the church at Rome that um, are spreading some lies about him, trying to tear him down because of jealousy and political reasons. They're trying to cause division in the church. And but yet he still can rejoice in the Lord because the gospel's being preached. Uh, what they were doing as a as a um, person was not right, but what they were preaching was correct. They were still preaching the gospel. they weren't preaching false doctrine and so Paul thought, well they can be mean to me all they want. Uh, but long as the gospel's being preached from the pulpit, that's all I care about. And then of course um, the fact that um, they're talking about him gets him to think about himself and he, he makes the comment that he's uh, straight betwixt the two, whether it's better to uh, stay here on earth to, for, to live as Christ or to leave this earth to die as gain. And he kind of weighs both sides of that and comes to the conclusion that it's more needful for him to continue to be here on this earth so he can see his Philippian brethren and help them. And then he emphasizes after making that point how important it is that people be unified in the church. This seems to be... Um, especially when you get the first part of of chapter 2, how that uh, this is his greatest desire for the church at Philippi, is that they remain united, that there's unity in the church. And so he brings that up and talks about some things that show how that they are all one in certain areas concerning God and concerning Jesus and concerning the Holy Spirit. And then he starts a beautiful section, verse 5, Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus which gives him the supreme example of unselfishness and obedience. And of course he's using that as an example to how we too should be unselfish when it comes to the church, and not always try to get our way, but instead do what is best for the church. And um, he, after making that statement, he, uh, verse 14 is really the thing he's been driving at all along of chapter two. Where he says, "Do all things without murmuring and disputing. And he brings out the point after that that the purpose of the church is to spread the gospel. And uh, if you're having division in the church, the gospel is not going to be spread because it's not going to leave the proper influence in the community. Then he gives us two examples as he closes chapter 2 of men who are very unselfish and would do anything for the church. And he, of course, mentions uh, Timothy, whom he is going to send uh, back after he receives news of his trial and, of course, Timothy had been very unselfish in his work with Paul. And then he mentions another man that he's going to send back directly by the name of... <laughs> what? His name's Epiglottis? Epaphroditus. Oh, Epaphroditus. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, was make, I, was keeping, I was keeping her mind on things there. But anyway, so he's going to send Epaphroditus. And so he's been building on this idea. And not, you know, not all commentators or even preachers would agree with me, but he's always been building on this idea about his great love for the church at Philippi and how he wants it to stay united because he knows if it doesn't stay united that it will cause it to split and it will cause problems and the church will disappear. And he loves this church so much and uh, and he wants to see it always succeed. And so that's still the same mindset when we get to uh, chapter 3 where he begins chapter 3 with the words, finally. Usually when I see the words, finally, that makes me think about the fact, well, he's, he's fixing to say, this is the end of what I'm going to say to you. But he uses this word, and he still has two more chapters to go. Have you ever been, I don't know if I'm guilty of this or not, but you've ever been listening to a preacher, and he'll get to his sermon, and he'll say, now, in conclusion, and then he'll preach for another 20 or 30 minutes, that's kind of what Paul did here. He says, finally, and then he says, i got two more chapters to write. I'm only halfway through with the book. Um, now, there are some people who believe that the word finally there, it can be interpreted in the Greek, by meaning the word can be to, I'm bringing you some more information now. In fact, you might even have some footnotes in your Bibles about that. But I don't agree with that. I think he's continuing the the continuation of the same thought he had. He's not introducing any new material because... Well, let's put it this way. What's the number one cause of division in a church? If you had to sum it up, in not not a specific thing, not a like um, carpet or something like that, but I'm talking about a mindset. What's the number one mindset that causes division in a church? All right, selfishness, which leads us to understand it's about getting your own way. Uh, we could say. It's binding my will upon your will. In other words, uh, you think this way and I think this way, but I think my way is better than your way, so even though I might not have any scriptural authority for it, it's just my own opinion, but my way is the best way. And if my way is not the best way, then I'm going to hit the highway, or you need to hit the highway in some cases. And as we get to chapter 3, I don't think there's a train of thought Uh, a change of the train of thought, I think the the train of thought continues because he is going to deal in chapter 3 with Judaizing teachers. Okay, Although they're not mentioned specifically, we can tell from the content that um, that's who he's talking about. Now, we've talked about Judaizing teachers before, especially when we were having that sermon series on the book of Acts. But what is a Judaizing teacher? Yes, Roger. All right, they, these were men who were Christians, these Judaizing teachers. They had been converted, so-called, to Jesus Christ. But they thought it would be best for everybody concerned if new Christians also kept the law of Moses. I mean, think about it; so You get the best of both worlds. I mean, you, you're a Christian, and you're going to do all the things we used to do because, you know, that we were close to God when we were doing it, and if we were close to God when we were doing it, it should be the same way for you, too. And so now that you're a Christian and you're a Gentile, you need to basically become a Jew. And that would be involve circumcision. And I think we're all adults here know what circumcision is, but circumcision was something that started with Abraham to show his covenant relationship with God. And it was also commanded in the law of Moses to, for the Jewish people to show their covenant relationship with God. Now, circumcision became... The key word for Judaizing teachers, because that was the thing that was the most atrocious, that you would have somebody become a Christian and say, Hey, now the baptistry, we need to go see somebody. You need to have some surgery. And so that became the key word, but it wasn't just circumcision. It was about keeping the feast days. It was about um, all the things that were part of the law of Moses. Not being able to eat pork, if you will. And I had pork for supper tonight, so you know how I feel about Judaizing teachers. But... um, it was everything that went along with all the rituals and the rules and everything of Judaism. Circumcision is the main thing mentioned because that was the obvious thing. You know, if you can get a, talk a man who was a Gentile, a grown man, after he becomes a Christian, to get getting circumcised, then you've done something. To be quite honest with you, and that was why that was the apex of the discussion. Yes, sir. Yeah, Timothy, he, Timothy did that, but that was done for expedient reason, not for Jewish reasons. It's because of the traveling situation. Now, he had Titus, who traveled with him too, who was also a Christian, who did not get circumcised. And once again, the purpose of it was for expedient reasons. It was proven a point. Timothy was both Jewish and Greek, whereas Titus was all Greek. And it was all about being accepted in certain circles so he could get the opportunity to preach the gospel. But it was not a religious requirement. And that's the situation there, but good point. Anything else anybody like to add? Well, that's why I don't think there's a change of thought here when Paul says, finally. I think when he says, finally, here, I'm going to deal with something in your church that's going to come up because this is going to happen in your church. Those Judaizing teachers are going to show up, and if you don't do something to stop them, they're going to split that church wide open because they're going to try to bind on those people there things that they, could, they, they shouldn't ever bind. And that's usually the nature of all division. There's somebody that wants to bind something on in a church that doesn't need to be bound. And they want to assert their own will. And these Judaizing teachers were adamant that it had to be done this way or people couldn't go to heaven. And if you don't do it our way, then your church is not a good church. And they would do everything they can to try to split the church apart and get their way. Um, Many years ago, but you don't hear a whole lot about it now, but the church... Christ went through a hard time because of a group of men who wanted to get their own way. It started in a place in Gainesville, Florida called the Crossroads Church of Christ and they came up with this idea that a Christian would be a better Christian if they were more involved in what was called discipling and this discipling process, you basically turn your life over to a prayer partner and that prayer partner controlled your life and the reason for it was of course that that uh, this will make you more spiritual if you had this religious guidance of this, this, this person who is discipling you as your prayer partner. And you're to go to him to confess to him. You go to him to make all your decisions. And basically, it, it sort of turning into a cult. And it's now known as the uh, Boston Movement or the, um, I forget the other name for it now. i almost say Universal Church of Christ, but that's not right. Yeah, went from the Crossroads movement to the Boston movement. Now they have the International Church of Christ. It's called the International Church of Christ now. But you don't hear a whole lot about them. But when they first started, they even happened when I was growing up in my hometown, they would send some people in and the whole point of that, those people coming in, they would move to the city, come to church there, place membership and do everything they could to destroy the church. Unless you wanted to go their way and then they were very happy because now they have discipled another church. But it was really just a form of brainwashing where they totally controlled your life. Well, this is what you have, that's what you had then. Back in Paul's day, the Judaizing teachers were doing the exact same thing. They would come from another town and come to a church and either the church would become a Judaized church or they would destroy the church. And so Paul now, he's talking about unity, he's talking about his great love for this church, and so he's not changing his thought, I don't think, I think he's saying get ready because something that's going to attack your unity is going to happen. And that's why we have what we have here in the beginning of chapter 3. So that kind of gives you the background, at least the way I think about it, of what's happening here. But any questions or any comments? All right, let's listen to what he actually writes. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. That's a little bit hard to understand in the King James, but let's kind of break this verse down. First of all, the King James has rejoice in the Lord. Literally in the Greek, it has rejoice only in the Lord, as far as the grammatical context. Now... What would he mean to say rejoice only in the Lord, especially in connection to what he has coming up in this text? Let you should do a little pondering and thinking there. Does he mean, if he said rejoice only in the Lord, does that mean that's the only place we can ever have any joy is in the Lord? That's not what he's talking about. He's fixing to talk about Judaizing teachers who put all their confidence in what? The law, which is a system of salvation that's based upon what? Moses and me, flesh. Right, it's it's what I can do. The whole point of the law was to prove I couldn't do it. And so he's beginning his discussion about these Judaizing teachers by saying, you're only rejoicing that you have, really, when it comes down to it, it's not you, it's Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to be saved is because of Jesus Christ. There's your glory. There's your boasting. It's in Jesus Christ. It's not the boasting of the flesh that these Judaizing teachers are going to come up with here in just a moment. He's going to be talking about. So he's setting the stage there, which is a common theme here in the book of Philippians. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to have rejo- to be rejoicing. But the key to it all is Jesus Christ. That's the only real rejoicing. Yes, sir? Well, like Absolutely. And so he's setting the stage for that, that if if we're going to have unity in Jesus Christ, then we need to understand and appreciate what it means to have unity in Jesus Christ. It's not about us, it's about him. It's not about our own works, if you will. It's about what Jesus Christ and the work that he did to make us righteous. Because the Judaizing teachers, it was all about works. It was all about what the flesh could do. It was all about outward rituals and signs and being able to, to say, look at me, I've done this. And that's what they were trying to bind upon the the first century church. And so he he goes on and says, Rejoice only in the Lord. And that is in the present active active indicative in the Greek, which that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but present active, active indicative in the Greek means continuous action. It's the most linear thing in Greek. Once you make this statement, that statement means it happens, never stops. It has no end. It's like... The number system, you can keep going and the number system never ends, even when you get to Googleplex, it keeps on going. And so the rejoicing in the Lord is something that should never end. Uh, we should always be rejoicing in the Lord. But he says, to write the same things to you. Now what in the world does he mean to write the same things to you? Absolutely. When you think about you know the three years Paul was a, uh, a missionary, and uh, you think about the time he was in prison, Uh, You think about what a prolific writer he was in the books that we do have. Undoubtedly, he wrote some more books. Uh, There's even an allusion in 2 Corinthians that there was another uh, letter to Corinth that we have no record of. Now, the reason why we don't have a record of it is because God decided we didn't need it. But that doesn't mean he didn't write letters to other churches. And evidently, as Michael said here, he had written to the church at Philippi before, about this very thing, because this is evidently something that's troubling him quite a bit. These Judaizing teachers. Now, what do you want to say? Yeah, it, it doesn't bother him to repeat himself, especially if it's something that's very necessary. Now they've changed it a lot in school these days, but it used to be the way I learned when growing up was repetition, repetition, repetition. And um, you know, if you want to learn something, you just keep repeating that thing over and over again. Um, as a preacher, I have a hard time sometimes. When I'm trying to decide what to preach on, not getting trapped in the idea where well, they've heard this so many times they don't need to hear it again, because that's not the way it's supposed to work. If you did hear it, you need to hear it again, uh, because do what? Well, that's true. That's true. But uh, I can be creative and go to all kinds of different directions. But those basic fundamentals of doctrine need to be repeated from time and time again because. We always need to have that reinforced, and that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I've already written this to you before, uh, but it doesn't bother me to write it to you again. And the main reason why it doesn't bother me to write it to you again is because of what he says in the latter part of uh, verse uh, 1. Like I said, in the King James, it's kind of awkward. He says, but for you, it is safe. Now, he doesn't mean it's safe for me to write you again. Like, you're going to get mad if I write you again. He's saying, this is for your safety. This is for your own good. That's why I don't mind writing you again. Uh, The King James Version has grievous, but um, the literal word there is tedious. This is not a tedious thing for me to do because this is about your safety. I'm concerned about your souls. I'm concerned about the church there. I'm concerned about unity. So I don't have a problem uh, writing all this to you again. Uh, Yes, Uh, repetition is the way we learn and, and... you know, the more you hear something, the more you remember it. Absolutely. Well, he gets into what he wants to talk to them about. Uh, this is the same thing he's written to them before. He needs to tell them again because of the fact that their safety is involved. And he says, beginning of verse 2, beware of dogs. Do what? Yeah, they'll bite you. Um, you got to watch some dogs. Now, if we had dogs come running through the church right here, it would cause some trouble, I guess. And so he's telling them, you don't want any dogs in the house. You want to keep the dogs out of the house, okay? Uh, but literally, he's talking about, well, just finish the rest of the verse. He's not talking about the literal animal dogs. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now, a lot of stuff going on here in this short little verse. First of all, it's obvious because of what he's talking about in this uh, chapter that the dogs he's referring to are people and the people he's referring to it's obvious are these judaizing teachers now why in the world do you think that he calls them dogs they did call gentile dogs that was the lowest form uh they called gentiles dogs because they thought that was the most egregious thing they could call them dogs running packs hey y'all getting around the same page here and what are you going to say Flo? but that's a cat The cat. not Cats will eat their food and come up and sit in your lap and breathe in your face. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but you ever seen a seen a dog when it comes to um, his food most of the time? I mean, there's some exceptions to this. But dogs, you put out some food, they kind of just take their time, don't they? So I have a little bite here. I have no, they don't. I'm sorry, Janice. I didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> Do they really? Well, uh, most of the time, well, probably because that dog is a happy dog and is, is well fed and whatnot and he's not looking for his next meal. But in the time that Paul lived, and prior to that, people didn't keep dogs as pets. Dogs were wild animals that roamed the streets, that hung out in the dump pile, that looked for opportunity to steal food from me. That if they got food, they ate it as quickly as they could because they were afraid the dog beside them would get it. And they spread disease, they... They weren't the you know, little or whatever you call them, those little Lopsops, those little, little toy dogs you carry around. These were hounds that you didn't want to mess with. People didn't have dogs as pets. They thought dogs were disgusting. And so that's why the Jews referred to the Gentiles as a bunch of mongrels and dogs because they were heathens and because they didn't have the rights to the same things they had. And Paul's turning around using this word to supply to talk about some Christians who are acting like the dogs that the Jews talked about. He's turning it back on them because first of all, they're running in packs, and they're doing this out of selfish means, and they're wanting to devour the church that they're coming to. And so you can see what a, what a picturesque word that becomes now when Paul uses that. And the church at Philippi, boy, their minds just all suddenly started working on that. That's right. That's, who, that's what they are. And then he goes on and refers to them as evil workers. They think that because of the work that they're doing, that they are doing good things for people. Now, keep in mind that sometimes in life that we come up with an idea That maybe is a very sincere idea. It might be something that might even be helpful to the person. Um, For example, um, you might think it is a good thing if you prayed five times a day. You read about other people praying five times a day and you know that will make you closer to God. And therefore, you think that that will make you a better Christian if you prayed five times a day. And you set up, you saw Dr. Pepper bottle, and those were good times on there, and you picked those, those five times to, to pray. And you thought, man, this is making me closer to God. Well, you come into the church, and you say, well, listen, I'm closer to God because I'm praying these five times a day. And if you don't pray these five times a day, then you're not going to be as close to God. And therefore, you're not as good as I am, and therefore, we need to put a stop to this. I'm going to require everybody in the church to start praying five times a day. Now, is there anything wrong with praying five times a day? No. Would it possibly make you closer to God? Absolutely. But the problem is, is when you say, even out of sincerity, with all good intent, that you have to do this now, when the Bible says you don't have to do it, the Bible don't tell us how many times to pray. It just says pray without ceasing. Pray pray as much as you can. There's where the problem is. And that's what these Judaizing teachers were doing. They were saying, and they might have been sincere in this, this is what they need to do because they need to be in a right relationship with God. And the only way a Gentile Christian is going to be in a right relationship with God is to keep the law of Moses like we did for thousands of years. They thought they were doing good. I won't tell you what city this was in, but I was preaching in a church uh, in a city. My first couple of weeks there as a new preacher, a couple came to me and explained to me that they'd only been a Christian for a couple months. And um, I said, well... That's good, I'm glad to see you're still faithful. And they said, you just don't know what we had to overcome to remain faithful. And I said, well, well, what happened? He says, well, we were studying with the preacher here, and he told us the truth, which we agreed to be. It was the truth, and we obeyed the gospel. But almost immediately after we became Christians, he came to my house and he made us throw away every single rock and roll record we had. And to be honest with you, Jim, that about just turned us off to the church completely because this guy, thinking he could come in and tell us what we couldn't do and had to throw away from out out of our house and all that. Well, I think the person had good intentions that he thought maybe that might be a bad influence on them or whatever. But once again, he was binding something that the Bible didn't bind. And he was making them do something that the Bible didn't require of them. Now, it might have been a good thing for them to do that. Maybe he knew their personality as such that that was something they needed to take out of their life. But yet, that's not how it works. And that's what's going on here with these Judaizing teachers. They think that they're doing good works, but Paul refers to them as evil workers because of what they're trying to get men to do. In fact, he sums it up. The King James has the phrase, uh, Beware of the concision. Now, that's a word we don't use very often. And I'm just curious. Does anybody have anything different in a different translation? What do you have? Mutilators. Mutilators. That's what the actual word means. Um, It's actually a word that can mean the cult of mutilation. And what he's doing is he's making a play on the words of... He's making a pun like with circumcision. He's taking circumcision and turning it into concision. And concision... Was something that the pagan people did when they cut themselves. Over there in, what was it 1 Kings 18, where you have Elijah having his big contest with the prophets of Baal, and, and Baal wouldn't hear the prophets, and so the prophets start taking knives and cutting themselves. That's something that the pagans did. And so, what he's doing here, he's trying to let the people at Philippi know, and also if any of these Judaizing teachers read, read this, is that you're not practicing circumcision, you're just practicing mutilation. You're just having people mutilate themselves. Because if you're, you're, if you're being circumcised for religious reasons, you've messed up. Because circumcision has no spiritual value whatsoever. Now, in our country today, people practice circumcision for health reasons or for, for uh, whatever kind of reasons, but there's no s- s- scriptural, spiritual religious reason for any man to, to have a circumcision today. And so Paul is saying, you're getting all these people to circumcise themselves, but all you're doing is mutilating the flesh because it has no spiritual value whatsoever. You hadn't done anything to that person to make him closer to God. All you've done is mutilate him. That shows you how Paul felt about this. He called them dogs. He calls them evil workers. He calls them people who go around causing people to mutilate themselves. And then he brings out the other side of it. He says, for we are the circumcision. Who's the we he's talking about? Christians. We're the circumcision. And once again, understand that the purpose of circumcision was to show, starting with Abraham and also through the law of Moses with the Jewish people, that Abraham and his descendants and also the Jewish people were in a covenant relationship with God. Circumcision was the, the covenant relationship token. And he is saying now that those of us who are Christians, when we became Christians, we are now are in a covenant relationship with God. And so there's no need for circumcision. We are the circumcision. How, what happened? Why are we in a, in a covenant relationship with, with God? Well, because Jesus Christ was cut off, if you will. He was separated from the Father. He's the one that was bloodied for us, if you will. Not to get too graphic when we start thinking about what Paul's talking about here, but that's the point he's making. We have had our hearts circumcised, if you will, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are in a covenant relationship not because of what we did by an outward sign of our flesh, but because of what Jesus Christ did. And that's the point that he's making. And, um, and to make sure we understand it in verse 3 he adds three points that tell us how we know that we're in the circumcision as far as God is concerned, how we are the circumcision. Um, Talking about the inward circumcision, he makes three points. The first one is, we know that we are the circumcision because we worship God in the Spirit. Now, um, what does he mean to worship God in the Spirit? And what in the world would that have to do with Judaizing teachers? Well, We know John 4.24 says God is the spirit, and they that must worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But what is worshiping in the spirit? Why, Paul, why is Paul bringing this up, especially in his attack against Judaizing teachers? All right, let me help you out here a little bit, because sometimes it's hard to think like I'm thinking, because it's kind of crazy how I think sometimes. You've got New Testament worship. Think about it for a moment. You've got Old Testament worship. Think about it for a moment. All right, you got sacrifices. What else you got involved with Old Testament? It's all about the outward signs and all the rituals. You know, you had the priest with all the different garments. You have the, the different things that the priest did. You had all the different requirements that were coming. It was all about the outward pomp and circumstance, if you will, when it came to Jewish uh, religion. It's all about the outward thing. Well, what's New Testament Christianity about? Why did Jesus say, God is a spirit, and you must worship in spirit and truth? Yes. Right. Yeah, you know, we all come together in here, and we, do, we don't have any pomp and circumstance. We sit as a congregation and sing and pray and listen and gather around the Lord's table. Uh, it's not about the, the ritual. It's about the heart. And so we worship God in spirit, in a sense. We don't worship him in flesh. Because it's not about me when I come to worship service; it's about God, and um, and that's the point that He's making here. You can tell you're part of the circumc- uh, circumcision because you're not concerned with all this Judaizing stuff. How you got to do this? You got to do this, and you got to. No, you're concerned about the heart, and you're worshiping from the heart, and it's not about all the all the outward signs and circumstances. And then the second thing He mentions is. Uh, you can know you're in the circumcision because you rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, the King James Version has rejoice. Anybody have anything different there? Because the, that's not a good word there for, in the King James. Boast. That's what the word means. Now, what do you have there? NIV has boast. Okay, I couldn't remember. Some has glory. That's what I thought the NIV had glory. Okay. All right. Some, some people translate it rejoice. Some translate it glory. But the best word is boast. Now, Once again, what does he mean when you know you're of the circumcision if you boast in Jesus Christ in relationship to these Judaizing teachers? Right, there you go. They were boasting in themselves. Look at me, I'm keeping the law of Moses. Look at me, I've been circumcised. It's like the Jews are supposed to be. And if you're going to do the same thing and be in a right relationship with God, then you need to do the same thing to you. But that's not how Christianity works. I I can do every outward thing that possible. I could live the most perfect life. But do you remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 64 and verse 6? All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. The only boasting I can ever do is in Jesus Christ. He is the only reason why I'm going to be saved. And so, he's, once again, he's making a dichotomy there between these Judaizing teachers who say it's all about me and the flesh and what I can do to the fact we understand that without Jesus Christ, we don't have anything. Our only boasting is in Jesus Christ. Now, it's time to stop. I, I, we didn't get as far as I thought we would. But um, the final point he makes is, and we'll talk more about this next time, we know we're of the circumcision because we have no confidence in the flesh. And I don't know about you, but I, I know every day that I don't need to have any confidence in the flesh. Because I know I mess things up. And if it wasn't for the power of being able to boast in Jesus Christ, oh, I'd be of all men most miserable. And, of course, he's making that final dig at the Judaizing teachers who, putting, who are putting all their confidence in the flesh. But he's saying if you're a, a true Christian, you understand it's not about rituals, it's about the heart. If you're a true Christian, you know your boasting in Jesus Christ, not yourself. In fact, you have no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. It's not about you. It's about Christ. But we've got to stop. Thank you for your time and your attention.